You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Today, President Donald Trump is expected to sign an executive order encouraging government agencies to fulfill his campaign promise to, quote, buy American, hire American. But what does that mean in our global economy? What does it mean to hyper-focus on making, buying, and selling American and American-only products? What would renegotiating trade deals with foreign countries do to bolster American manufacturing and business? If the Trump administration wants companies to prioritize hiring American workers, what jobs await those workers? And what does it mean for the future of the companies? The president of the United Auto Workers Union recently said that to, quote, buy American is to buy products that are made in American, even if they're owned by companies that are located elsewhere. That's a really interesting change, I think, in the sort of meaning behind that phrase. We're going to spend the rest of the show today talking about the future of trade and the future of making things here in America. And we want to hear from you, especially on this. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. When you hear the phrase, buy American, hire American, or made in America. What does it mean to you? Does it mean the same thing today that it did in the 70s and 80s when I was a kid growing up here in Detroit and we were very concerned about, for instance, foreign competition from Japanese automakers? I can remember very tense conversations and debates taking place at that time about the idea of globalization. Some 30, almost 40 years later, Does that mean the same thing? Are we in the same kind of economy globally that we were then? And do those phrases have the same kind of weight or importance? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we will try to work your uh, we'll try to work your comments into the conversation. Also joining me now to discuss this issue are Ravi Anupindi. He is a professor of operations research and management at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. Uh, professor, welcome here to Thank Detroit you. today. Yes. Uh, also here is Brent Snavely. He is an auto reporter at the Detroit Free Press. Brent, welcome to Detroit today. Good morning, Stephen. Yeah. Uh, Brent, let's let's start with you. Uh, there in the open, I was talking about when I was a kid here in the 70s and 80s, uh, this this sort of strain of anti foreign uh, uh, dialogue that that emerged out of the competition that the Detroit Three were facing, uh, beginning to face at that point, from Japanese automakers who were uh, increasingly uh, building cars that that Americans found more efficient, sometimes uh, cheaper. And we're starting to try to make those cars here in in America instead of just in Japan. Uh, made in America at that point uh, was a really strong cultural statement about Detroit, I felt like, about the auto industry. Uh, there were movies that were made about this this competition that I can remember all set in the Midwest in auto plants. Uh, you know, fighting back against uh, uh, foreign competition. It's it's hard to imagine that 
you could have even the same kind of conversation today or that you could say those things and they would land on people's ears in the same way given what has changed. So so start us off by trying to put that into some context. How much has changed since the 70s and 80s in the terms of what we consider to be made here in America or by American, higher American. Well, yeah, thanks, Stephen. The, the industry has changed tremendously since the early 80s. And, and to your point, we, we now have you know, in America you know, Asian automakers and German automakers with numerous plants in, in America. And, and yet, um, I mean, this is still an incredibly passionate topic. I think what we saw during the camp, the Trump's campaign last year is he he very much tapped into um, the the um, manufacturing job losses and the angst that has come from that. Some of which you could attribute to NAFTA and the ability of uh, automakers to build plants in Mexico, but not all uh, automated automation has led to a lot of. Uh, far more job losses is what many experts would would say, and so what we have now is is a situation where buy American um, still means very much the similar things to, as what it meant in the early '80s to many people, but perhaps means very very different things to auto workers in Georgetown, Kentucky, where Toyota builds the Camry, yes, um, or in Marysville, Ohio, where Honda ha- has has plants there. And in fact, and, and so what I, the main thing I would like to say about this is Buy American starts off, I believe, with a very noble desire to promote investment in the U.S. and protect jobs in the U.S., but it gets very complicated very quickly when you start thinking about is the Chrysler Pacifica, which is built just a few miles away from here across mm-hmm. the border, across the river in Windsor. Is that American or not? <laughs> right. Is the Toyota North Camry America. <laughs> American or not? And then and then think about this. This is a – you think of American-made pickup trucks and GM, Ford, and Chrysler vastly lead in, in uh, pickup truck production. You know, GM has a pickup truck plant for the Silverado in Fort Wayne, Indiana – but they also build them in Salal, Mexico. Yes. So you're going to be asking a consumer to go onto the dealer lot and, and look and, at the stickers and, on, and, on exactly, the cars. Exactly. Right? And look at VIN stickers. And I brought this, which you can't see on the radio, but uh, <laughs> um, you know, you got to look at the very first number on the vehicle identification sticker to decode what country the vehicle comes from. And so there's some, there's there, UAW workers, American auto workers, they might be into that. And willing to, to decode that, but, but a lot of a lot of cons- but your average that. consumer, I, 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 the buying a car is one of the most complicated uh, processes and biggest purchases to begin with, and then this would be an added layer on top of that, and it's and it's a step that I think is a challenge for a buy American campaign to get to. Yeah, yeah, uh, Professor Anupendi. So so put that in some context, in some sort of global context. Does that make does it make any sense? For us now to even be worrying about this kind of thing, where things are made, where they come from, or ought we be more concerned about the role of the American worker uh, in a global economy that that will will make things where it's probably most efficient uh, to make them, and and the challenge then to us is to find the the place for that worker uh, in that system. 
Right. Uh, thank you. First, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. Sure. Uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, when this is, uh, you know, picking up on what Brent was just talking about, first, you know, for a consumer to even figure out what <laughs> this means is extremely hard. And if we roll back, I mean, you, you uh, referred us back to the 70s, 80s when the Japanese transplants came here, but let's go back even before. You know, the world of uh, manufacturing has changed quite a bit. You know, post-World War, when we're talking about vertically integrated manufacturing, if you think about the Ford Rouge plant right here, then we could, it was easy to say, what is made in America? I mean, starting from the raw material all the way to finished goods. But today we live in a world, a globalized world, where supply chains are completely global. And um, different parts of the supply chain in terms of products and components that go into a finished automobile are coming from different countries. So it, uh, picking up on the example that Brent gave, if GM is assembling, let's say, uh, 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 trucks in Mexico, well, many of the parts that go into the products that get assembled in Mexico are coming from the United States. Mm-hmm. So this notion of what is you know made in country X is very, very hard. And coming back to the point you're saying is, so why should we be worrying about this anyway? Ultimately, it is about jobs and you know workers and for a particular country, if we take that country's perspective. So the perspective we have to take is, how do we create more jobs in this global economy? And, uh, that, and what kind of jobs are we talking about anyway? So when we talk, say Made in America, if it is a US headquartered company, well, clearly there is implications for what kind of jobs are created at the managerial level. Yes. There's also the jobs in the manufacturing shop floor level. There's all of the other support jobs that come in. You know, design, you know, is an Apple iPhone made in America? No, it's designed in America, but made in China. Right. But, you know, Apple has a is just building a beautiful campus in, in Silicon Valley. I mean, it's <laughs> going to create lots of jobs. So I think, you know, we need to have a much more nuanced view in today's global supply chains about, first, why should we worry about this? Uh, it should be about, clearly, as, as uh, the discussion these days is about jobs, and therefore, what is the best way to create more, better jobs in this globalized world yeah. is should be the focus. Yeah, uh, I, I want to turn the the subject to the president and the executive orders that he's expected to sign today, as well as the rhetoric that he indulged during the campaign. This was a central part of his promise to his voters: was that look, I'm going to bring jobs back to America. I'm going to make sure that. When we spend American money on on projects, uh, taxpayer money on projects, uh, that's going to be spent with companies here in America. It's going to create jobs here. It's not going to go overseas. He's now following that up with an executive order that we, of course, have not seen the details of yet, but that he says it will fulfill this promise to buy American, hire American. Is that a realistic, is it a realistic goal of his to to do this? Are there ways that he can uh, help uh, American workers simply by stressing the idea of buying and, and hiring American? Uh, and, and is it something that, uh, uh, that, that, that has any sort of real chance of, of, of making a difference? Brent, I'm going to start with you again in the, in the context of the auto industry. You've got the UAW. Uh, 
saying that they're taking sort of a more nuanced view of this even than the president is, uh, which is sort of unusual. Uh, what what are they saying about this whole? And you had a lot of auto workers, I think, go out in November and vote for Donald Trump, thinking, "Hey, listen, people who work in manufacturing, saying he's going to get us our jobs back. He's going to bring jobs uh, back uh, to America that had gone overseas." Uh, what, what 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 can we expect, or what do you hear from uh, people who work in the auto industry about what they expect from this? Sure, I mean, this is there's it's a fascinating dynamic right now between sort of UAW and union politics and the president's politics. On almost every issue, you um, couldn't get sort of a more diametrically opposed viewpoint politically um, than than the UAW and union politics than with Trump, except when you get to trade um, and positions on NAFTA, which is wrapped up in this whole by American um, um, debate on that, on this issue. Um, the UAW and and President Trump are uh, generally very very much in alignment, um, and so that's why you saw, um, as we talked about earlier, Dennis Williams saying contemplating a a UAW or Union by American campaign. But that was February, and and we're now towards the end of April, and they haven't launched it yet. And I think this complexity, perhaps, and they haven't told me, is is playing into the delay. Although I'm told, um, as of yesterday, I was told that that they are still thinking about it, and it still is on the agenda. Um, but again, keep in mind that that for the UAW, it's 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 not just by American, but it's by union-made American, yes. um, which which gets into this um, gets into this complexity. And then and but vehicles from Canada, which are uh, made by the Detroit Three, um, which represents Unifor. Uh, workers are represented by the Union Unifor. That's all fine, um, but 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 vehicles from Mexico um, are not because of the lower wages. Um, uh, is is especially sort of the the point that um, that frustrates and 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 angers um, union workers. So yeah. Yeah, uh, Professor Anapindi, uh, what wh- what do you make of the president's rhetoric? Is it just rhetoric? Is it just campaign uh, promises, or are there things he can really do to boost American manufacturing by uh, boosting American buying? You can't force people to be, you know, making the buying decisions. I mean. If you do that, you create a lot of inefficiencies. Uh, I mean, this is not at an individual level, but even at an organizational level. Um, I think the one has to get to the root cause of, uh, you know, competitiveness. And if you create uh, those fundamental changes, make that happen, then it will be in the best interest of uh, companies to exactly uh, do what uh, President Trump wants uh, the outcome to be in terms of better jobs, et cetera. So one has to go back to the basics to kind of think about what is it that needs to be done to improve the competitiveness of U.S. manufacturing. And that, again, gets back to in terms of you know education, uh, some of the press that you see, companies who are trying to, I mean, the one, one word that comes up has been thrown around is reshoring. So reshoring as uh, uh, contrasting with uh, you know outsourcing offshoring. or offshoring, yeah. right? 
But, you know, yes, there is a lot of hype around it. Some people have tried to move, but there's also press coming up saying, well, we are trying, but we don't find the right skilled workforce. So I think one of the stuff that, one of the things that President Trump or his policies could do is really think in terms of what does it mean to upskill and provide the right kinds of skill training to the American population. And that, of course, applies also to, to Michigan. Sure. I mean, I read somewhere, and you guys can correct me, about 30, 30, 30% of uh, Michigan residents go to college. But what about the other 70%? Right. Right? Yeah. I mean, what, what opportunities do they have from technical training perspective, et cetera? Now, if you really think forward in terms of where manufacturing is moving, there is a lot of talk, and uh, the previous administration put in a lot of manufacturing competitiveness uh, uh, discussion and also created centers. So yes, manufacturing is moving to what has been labeled as advanced manufacturing, but are we creating the skill sets? And I'm not just talking about high-end college level, you know, research kind of skill sets. Yes, all, the, all of that innovation is also required, but we also need the manufacturing skill set to support that innovation such that what is innovated here is also produced here. Yes. So are we kind of thinking holistically about you know, bringing some of that stuff. I think, so doing that bottom-up, you know, uh, infrastructure, both hard and soft. So the other part we haven't talked about, and I think the current administration has talked a lot about building up the infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. I think those are the things I would go back to say, how do we build the country's uh, competitive positioning? Yeah. So that then firms make their own choices. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guests are Ravi Anupindi. He's a professor of Operations Research and Management at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. Also here is Brent Snavely, an auto reporter with the Detroit Free Press. We are talking about the idea of buy American, hire American. President Donald Trump is expected today to sign an executive order encouraging government agencies to fulfill his campaign promise uh, to make Made in America a priority or more of a priority than it was before. What do you think about that? What do you think about the idea, that phrase, made in America, or the phrase, buy American, hire American? Does it make sense in an economy that is as global as the one we exist in today? And give me a call and talk about whether you think the president has the power, unilaterally even, uh, to make those things happen. Can he bring jobs back from overseas? Can he do more to make sure that uh, when the government spends money, it's spending it on companies here in America? And will that make a difference? Will that make a difference, especially for people in our region? Think of the number of folks who are involved in the manufacturing economy who live here in Michigan, especially in Southeast Michigan. A lot of them voted for Donald Trump, thinking that he would make things better. Do you believe that will happen? Do you believe that the rhetoric of the campaign can transfer into policy success? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll work your comments into the conversation. Mike on Facebook says, yes, as consumers, we should accept that we're going to spend a bit more money on goods if those items are manufactured by people being paid a livable wage. Mike injecting the whole idea of wage wages and uh, fair wages uh, into the conversation. <clears throat> Thank you very much uh, for that. Uh, Mike on Twitter, a different Mike, says, it's all a sham. I buy what makes sense for my bank account and my needs. 
Big business doesn't care about it either. Uh, Mike on Twitter, thank you very much for that uh, for that comment. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Janet in Southfield. Janet, welcome to Detroit today. Yes, thank you uh, mm-hmm. for taking my call. Sure. And I hope the uh, guests will be able to maybe address my question or comment. Uh-huh. Um, my first, my comment is I'm a GM retiree. I uh, started my <clears throat> career with GM in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. So I do remember very well the influx of Japanese vehicles. Um, we couldn't even, if you owned a foreign vehicle, you couldn't park in a certain place in the parking lot. I remember that too, at, uh, <laughs> the, at the At the facilities. So I do remember that uh, very well. But my question is regarding the downward push on wages uh, with this global uh, economy that we're in and the expectation that I, I believe that the U.S. is still the largest consumer market uh-huh. in the world and that uh, we purchase more vehicles than other places in the world at this point. And what my uh, uh, experience, you know, and just looking back over history, is that um, how do you expect U.S. workers and uh, to purchase vehicles that are manufactured other places, which is okay, uh-huh. but their wages don't support um, the ability to pay for some of these thirty, forty thousand dollar vehicles. Huh. That's a that's a very interesting question and the connection that you're making there, uh, Janet. Thank you very much for the call and the comments. Uh, either of you want to take a crack at that? Sure. I, sure. I hear I hear this a lot. This is a a very frequent sentiment. Um, you know, it started off with Henry Ford paying raising wages at the, shortly after the turn of the century. Um, so that workers could buy um, what they were making, uh-huh. and, and that led to tremendous early growth in the auto industry. And um, and I have a lot of sympathy for those thoughts and that sentiment. I, I, again, I think this is something that gets very complicated. What are we talking about here? Are we talking about paying somebody enough so that they can buy, as she mentioned, a $30,000 vehicle? Or are we talking about paying somebody enough so that they can buy a seventy dollars or $80,000 Cadillac or Lexus? Um, you know, I, I don't know that. I, I think that as you start to think about the, the 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 span of vehicles and the span of pricing of vehicles that is that is sold, um, that 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 it's an argument that that holds logic as you carry it out. Should mm-hmm. a, should somebody in a Rolex plant that assembles a Rolex watch be able to purchase a Rolex watch? Um, <laughs> you know, but but let me address the bigger issue on wages for a second. Um, I mean. So the the UAW in the face of growth in uh, of plants in the south and lower wages at plants in the south, and then the growth of plants in Mexico, where all in hourly wages and benefits are perhaps eight to ten dollars an hour compared to uh, all in wages that at the time a dec- more than a decade ago was above seventy here in the U.S. Um, the UAW agreed to contracts with with the much hated and maligned two-tier wage system, yes. which began at a much lower entry-level wage. Um, that ushered in an era of uh, of growth in the in the U.S. auto industry. 
um, lowered, um, you know, didn't equal, of course, but lowered the operational costs of the automakers here in the U.S. and is among the factors, not the only factor, among the factors that led to growth uh, uh, and reinvestment in, in the U.S. Um, all of this far, far predated, uh, you know, Trump Trump coming into office. In the recent UAW contract, you know, the, the two-tier wage system that was viewed as very controversial and divisive in the plants where you've got workers to some degree earning um, different, wages, different wages, doing sure. the same amount of money. Uh, and it was one of the major demands of workers to get rid of this. So in the most recent contract, the two-tier wage system um, was was – People are going to argue argue with me about this because I'm I've got to vastly oversimplify it. But the two tier wage system was largely eliminated uh, over the next couple of years, and so that's a dynamic now going forward in terms of uh, what what the automakers are how they're going to make decisions and where they invest. Now the automakers are still, and I need to make this point quickly, they are still investing billions in the U.S. and have added. Um, tens of thousands of jobs over the past five to 10 years in the U.S. as the economy has rebounded from the recession. Yeah, yeah. Professor? Right. So, I mean, definitely, you know, wages is, is but it's, it's one aspect of many other aspects, you know, and um, I don't think, uh, I mean, given the uh, U.S. being a developed economy, it's uh, and the fact that we live in a world that is heavily globalized as, uh, you know, uh, some, some people have talked about the flat world, it's going to be very hard to compete simply on wages. So one has to look at what are the other aspects that makes U.S. competitive and focus on those. And uh, so, so that's the, the answer to that rather than saying, oh, we have to pay these, this wage and uh, to do the same thing that can be done significantly cheaper somewhere else. Yeah. So these set of activities, set of tasks, set of products that one needs to produce has to be, you know, uh, competitively, uh, you know, reassessed in terms of uh, what should U.S. producers produce. And that's the way to kind of think about this. Otherwise, we'll, we'll, this is uh, not going to be sustainable trying to compete simply on wages. That's one aspect. Second is wage is not the only equation. As I said, in a, in a global supply chain, one has to look at what is the total cost. Right. Off of doing business, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about what it means to be made in America. Stay with us. Stay with us on the phones, 313-577-1019. Lots of people want to join the conversation. Watts in Clinton Township, Tony in Clarkston, Fran in Redford. We will get to you after the break. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guests are Ravi Anupindi. He is a professor of operations research and management at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. Also, here is Brent Snavely, an auto reporter with the Detroit Free Press. We are talking about the phrase made in America. President Trump says today he's going to sign an executive order that will fulfill his campaign promise to buy American, hire American. But what does he mean by that? Does that mean the same thing 
as we are accustomed to it, meaning in this country. Think about the global economy we live in. Does that change the meaning of something like Buy American or does it change the importance of something like Buy American, Hire American? You want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the Facebook page of WDET and put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work your comments into the conversation. Uh, Let's go to Fran in Redford. Fran, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, how are you doing, Stephen? Good, how are you? Good, good. I was just listening to your uh, guest and uh, uh, some very good points. Uh, The Buy American slogan has been used for decades as a marketing strategy and a political strategy to just pull on, on the heartstrings of Americans and manipulate them into buying into, you know, say a, a political candidate's policies or a corporate uh, uh, conglomerate's products and services. So it, it's, it's, really, it's really emotionalism that, that the slogan invokes in, in Americans. Yeah. But the reality is, globalization has been taking place for decades and that's not going to change and trump's executive order is not even worth worth the paper it's going to be written on (laughs) because you're not going to force a ford a gm a chrysler uh or even microsoft a google to hire americans if they don't find it profitable to do so they can import foreign workers who come in with credentials and skills to do these jobs, and they will do these jobs for half of what an American will do the jobs for. So if Trump wants to really impact American companies into investing in American workers, what he needs to do is to put a policy in place that will offer incentives to companies to hire and train Americans. And yeah, we really do need interesting... to retrain our people in this country today because you have you have people who have the education and experience but they're behind the, the you know the technological curve. Sure, so sure. companies don't invest in this like they used to in the in nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties. We used to invest in in retraining American workers. Yeah. This is not being done because it's it's easier and it's cheaper to import foreign skill uh, uh, sets who can come to this country and work for a fraction sure. of the yeah. cost as contractors, and there is Fran, no, no buy-in. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's a great, uh, that's a really great point. Thank you very much for calling and making it. Uh, Brent Snavely, we were talking about uh, incentives, the difference in incentives from state to state. Is that a lever that makes sense in terms of trying to boost American manufacturing, in terms of trying to boost the the, the buying of American products. What I'm glad the professor uh, was getting at earlier is ultimately underlying all of this is the question of what is the solution? What do we do in the United States if we want to um, create a resurgence or a rebound in manufacturing jobs, which largely have been declining over the past 25 years? I think the professor's uh, discussion about skilled training, jobs training, and recognizing that the U.S. manufacturing base is going to be a lot more complicated and require uh, a lot more higher skills than in the past is is the solution. The other solutions, and if I would have ultimate solutions, I'd I'd probably be 
um, working somewhere else and getting paid <laughs> far more. But but state incentives is sort of the way we go in this country. We have states that fight each other uh, to uh, to see who will offer the most lucrative. Uh, incentives. Uh, Governor Snyder came into office really not liking um, the way that works and tried to go a different route. And now he's sort of swinging back to to competing in the same arena in the same way. And I will tell you what we as Americans don't see that much is Canada wrestles with this as well. Canada Canada's decline in manufacturing and automotive manufacturing specifically has been even more dramatic than in the U.S., and they wrestled with this tremendously last year and are trying to figure out how much is too much there. The problem is there's a threshold at some point where you go too far with providing incentives to global companies that are making billions in profits uh, and, and giving them tax breaks yeah. that, that may make auto workers very, very happy because it creates jobs and really angers some other parts of, of the population base. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Fran, again, thanks very much for uh, for the call. Let's go to Watts, Watts in Clinton Township. Welcome to Detroit. Hi. Um, until very recently, I lived in Detroit, 48205. Now it's uh, known as 48205. There's, because of uh, so many good U.S. jobs being sent huh. Uh, to other lands uh, due to NAFTA and not to uh, automation. I mean, some was automation, but a lot of that is a bunch of baloney, um, as in my case. Um, somebody said, the, I think it was Walter Ruther said, the best crime fighter is a good job. Sure. And uh, look at all the gang situations now, including down in Greektown uh, just the other day. And uh, look at the op- opioid um epidemic. I mean, you always had this stuff, but not as much. And uh, what would happen in World War II if uh, our supply chain was like like it is today? I mean, it's just, we're setting our own selves up. It's like yeah. a Trojan horse. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, lots. Uh, great. Great point, uh, and thanks very much uh, for the call. Uh, uh, Mike on uh, Facebook, or I, Mike was on the line and could not stay. He says, the problem is that Americans just aren't skilled enough for good tech jobs. Foreign workers make the same amount of money as American workers here in tech. Uh, let's go to Ruby, Ruby in Ferndale. Welcome to Detroit Today. Hi. Hi, how are you? I am really frustrated when I hear conversations about manufacturing in America when nobody brings in the fact that many products are now being manufactured in the prisons. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. It's not really. all robotics. What's that? I'm sorry. It's, it's not all robotics that are taking the jobs or overseas. And we, we cannot have a serious conversation without including that, especially when private prisons are on the move. Yeah, uh, private prisons in some ways make their money by using unskilled labor, uh, the, the labor of the prisoners, to produce uh, low-tech uh, products. You're, you're, you're right about that, Ruby. It's something that's uh, happening and expanding. So thank you very much uh, for that call. Let's go to Tony in Clarkston. Tony, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, thank you for having me. Uh-huh. Um, I just wanted to comment uh, kind of on the local front, um, things uh, like products we use every day, wear every day, like a Made in Detroit t-shirt. Um, 
you know, it says made in Detroit, but <laughs> I don't believe all the fabric comes from Michigan. Um, and it's not always the fault of the company. You know, sometimes products aren't native to whatever state or sure. there's not anybody who makes the fabric here. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to throw that in. Yeah. The mix no, there. Tony, <laughs> Tony, thanks a lot. That's a, that's a great point. Uh, professor, Anupendi, that's that's sort of going getting back to a point you were making earlier about the sort of absurdity of I mean, you could sort of chase your tail for days or years trying to figure out exactly uh, what's American made and what's not uh, and and to what end I guess yeah yeah I mean global supply chains extend quite a bit and and so that's that's one challenge and the challenge with that also becomes is you know there's some talk about uh, industrial clusters and when clusters it's it's more efficient to do things in a particular cluster rather than trying to explore that cluster and say just for the sake of branding something as made in USA Detroit or whatever if I'm force fitting this stuff I'm, I'm, I'm it's it's not the the best way to kind of do things yeah I just want to if I have a minute just uh, sure. in a few moments to go back to this incentive issue that we were discussing that that Brent also raised and one is incentive to for investments in terms of setting up factories etc and I know that states compete quite a bit but the other one could be that where states could play a huge role is uh, you know creating an infrastructure for I'm coming back to again upskilling people so that it makes it becomes attractive for a company to locate their facilities. And I'm reminded of what happened in South Carolina. I mean, there is this readysouthcarolina.org. I mean, they basically said, come invest in South Carolina. If you choose to invest in South Carolina, <laughs> we will invest in our people. <laughs> so there is a huge partnership between the needs of the industry and the technical education. So this is more the uh, community college, et cetera. So that way you're building the infrastructure of the people. So I'm coming back to investing in the people, and I think one of the callers earlier said that we're not investing in the people that we, the way we used to. And I think we need to somehow, and this is the role of the state and the government to kind of start thinking about channeling uh, incentives and investments around that. And if you create that right uh, you know, base, I think just naturally people would yes. want to locate there. Yes. Right. Uh, we've got uh, about two minutes left here, but uh, I want to get to one more caller. Deb in Detroit, very quickly. Welcome to the Detroit Hi. Yeah. I was just calling um, because I wanted to, uh, the effect of the right to work that uh, Governor Snyder in the state of Michigan is under. And what, what I see is family and friends who are working at small factories that supply the big factories, and they're working in horrible conditions for horrible wages. Yeah. So I I don't you know, I don't know you can bring the jobs back but if the unions or if there's nobody there to work for the conditions and the wages that the people have what good is it doing America and, and especially in Michigan or other right to work states right the idea of buy Americans should also support livable wages here for Americans Deb uh, great point uh, uh, Brent we've only got like thirty seconds left but but talk about the effect of right to work. Uh, here in Michigan, uh, on the auto industry, even uh, we, we actually haven't seen a tremendous uh, impact of right to work in the auto industry yet. I mean, workers are tied to um, the UAW contracts, and UAW would argue that um, in states where there have been right to work laws for many, many years, where the Detroit Three have plants, that their um, union membership is still pretty high, yeah. um, even even there. Yeah, and UAW is actually growing membership, I, I understand, nationwide, which is uh, 
a reversal of a long-term trend. All right, uh, Brent Snavely, auto reporter with the Detroit Free Press. Ravi Anupindi, professor of operations, research, and management at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. Thank you both for being here on Detroit Today. Thank you. All Thank right. you very much, Stephen. It's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow. Hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. We'll see you tomorrow.